welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey folks, welcome to episode number 36 of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Mark Bubbs, and I'm really excited today to have Mr. Dan Party, sleep and behavior expert and CEO of HumanOS.me on the show. As usual, Dan does a phenomenal job of unpacking all the really complex sleep and circadian biology science into really digestible and actionable information. So in this episode today, he's going to discuss how much sleep do you need and what insights does research on hunter-gatherer communities tell us about our optimal sleep needs. He also discusses circadian biology, our internal body clocks, and how things like food timing, when you eat your meals, movement, caffeine, and light exposure all deeply impact these fundamental daily rhythms. Dan then dives into implications of sleep and circadian biology on weight gain, specifically recent animal studies on late night eating, calorie and movement controlled. Does this worsen weight gain when you eat most of your calories at night? And how does light exposure in the evening impact your cravings and your feedings? He also discusses impacts on athletic performance, gives some great tips on how to fight off jet lag, and shares some insights into how he likes to start his day. Phenomenal stuff here from Dan. As usual, find my layups and performance hacks at drbubs.com forward slash podcast and enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Dan Party, PhD. Dan is the CEO of HumanOS.me, which leverages a novel behavior model to promote health fluency, skill development, and lifestyle insights to help people master their health practice. He does research with the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Stanford and the Departments of Neurology and Endocrinology at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where he investigates how lifestyle factors like sleep influence decision-making, cognitive performance, and metabolism. Dan also works with Naval Special Warfare to help the most elite fighters in the world maintain alertness and capable mental performance under challenging circumstances. He currently serves as a board member for StandUpKids.org, as a council director for the True Health Initiative, an advisor to several health-oriented companies, Ample Meals, Fitstar, Splendid Spoon, Validich, and editor for the Journal of the Evolution and Health. Dang, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to, great to be on your show, Mark. Terrific. Well, before we uh, dive in, can you give listeners a little bit more background on how you got into this area of sleep research? Sure. I, gosh, I got into it very serendipitously. I was working in bioinformatics. Um, so that's the application of uh, computer processing to m do a variety of things with the human genome. In this case, it was to try to um, sequence the human genome for the first time. So it was early 2000s. Anyway, it's kind of tangential to the story, but that uh, that whole field was essentially technology before market, and all 33 companies in the space went out of business. And I was, uh, my boss at the time introduced me to um, the executive vice president of a company that called Orphan Medical, and they had a drug for narcolepsy. And um, I went to work for, for that company, and then... Uh, that company was bought by a company, Jazz Pharmaceuticals in Palo Alto, and I stayed. I d founded their medical affairs department, and I ran their research grant program, scientific publications for almost a decade. And in that time, <clears throat> gosh, I got to interact with uh, some of the top, many of the top sleep researchers around the world through advisory boards and through 
can, you know, discussing uh, possible research collaboration. Uh, and then I also was able to publish um, some work, some studies of my own and some papers of my own, which was a, a great opportunity. And uh, I think that that pretty immediately I developed a, a love for sleep and this, the science of it, and it's only grown over time. So um, I went back kind of later in my career to pursue a PhD. At the same time, I developed a behavior model to try to understand what is it that we need to do in order to help people maintain their health practice long term. So I developed a behavior model early in my in my PhD. And then um, so simultaneously, I've been working on my research studies. And then I've also been developing an application. It's now called Dance Plan, but um, in, very soon it'll be humanos.me. And uh, that's where I get to. It's kind of nice. I get to have one foot in research and then one foot where I try to translate the research into tools, techniques, applications, services that help people implement best class knowledge in their life. And so that's, uh, I like having that sort of duality of my, um, you know, how I get to spend my days. Absolutely. I mean, it's so important to have uh, that boots on the ground um, practice as well of really seeing what works in people because sometimes the information is so clear, but it's just not easy to get people to do it. Um, now, yeah. if, we, if we start the conversation around just like an evolutionary context of sleep, um, you know, whether it's clinical practice or with athletes, we know we're trying to get more sleep for folks. The average person, you know, about six and a half hours of sleep, I guess it is now. Um, yeah. So could you speak about, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, a study came out showing that a lot of the modern day hunter-gatherer tribes are actually not getting more sleep than we are. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is trying to flip things on its head a little bit. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, that was work by, <clears throat> done by Jerry Siegel and colleagues. Uh, Dr. Siegel is a um, pretty well-known uh, neuroscientist at UCLA. He's he was one of the first people to unravel some of the neurocircuitry of narcolepsy. He's done work in all sorts of species to try to understand what does sleep look like um, across you know mammals. He's looked at sleep in narwhals to wow. <laughs> sleep in uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I almost think that he that more challenging it is to try to study <laughs> the the subject. I think he likes it, which which I really admire. I think that's cool. So he, um, in this study in particular, he had gone to work with a group that was working with three different hunter-gatherer tribes, two in Africa, one in Bolivia. And they all, uh, even though they were geographically separated, um, they, they were in somewhat of a similar uh, position relative to the equator, uh, one that we feel that humans have evolved in, under that condition. So temperature was, temperatures range in this latitude somewhere between like 50 degrees and 90 degrees so never too cold never too hot uh and so they looked at that they they instrumented these hunter gatherers with actigraphy devices that measure measure movement and they also were able to detect body temperature um just from the periphery and then environmental temperature and light so they were triangulating these different signals to then try to understand over a period of time what are the rest activity sleep patterns like in these hunter gatherers now, one idea that has been put out there, which is a bit of a straw man argument, is that when the light, when sun goes down, that's when hunter gatherers go to sleep, and when the sun comes up, that's when hunter gatherers wake up. For sure. And and that, I mean, I, I don't even, I don't know that I've even heard that too much myself because we know that they had fire. We know that in the literature, there's uh, interestingly dancing is comprised a large part of the energy expenditure in hunter gatherer populations. So the tribe gets together. I know. I love that. Yeah. Um, so we know that they'd stay up past uh, sundown, but 
that was you know confirmed in this population. And what they found is that um, although you would say that light is probably dictating um, their sleep period, approximately when the sleep is occurring, what was most had greatest fidelity with actually sleep onset and then sleep offset, or other words, waking up, was temperature change. And so they would notice this vasoconstriction um, in the or vasodilation in the in the fingertips. Uh, when sleep would occur, so when they would go to sleep, and then the opposite when um, they would wake up, so this vasoconstriction. And the whole idea there is that um, this vasoconstriction and vasodilation is controlling uh, the core body temperature, which is then cooling the brain down for sleep initiation and then warming the brain up for um, uh, for the for sleep uh, for uh, wake wake uh, for waking. Excuse me. So um, that's that was a really interesting finding. It was a bit controversial. Other groups have not found that same um, occurrence. So what's cool is that there's there now some more investigation into what is natural sleep because you don't get that in a sleep lab. You know, there's if you've ever had a polysomnography, which is how you get a sleep study done, you've got 27 leads attached to your head and or all over your body, eyes, you know, nose sometimes sometimes you have something called a pez which is this cord that goes down your throat i mean how anybody can sleep during a sleep study is beyond me but exactly right uh, yeah but they're important right they're so they're not they're not great at detecting natural sleep but what they are good at detecting is pathological sleep patterns so you know restless leg syndrome narcolepsy um sometimes insomnia although not great with insomnia but you know so they have purpose but yeah kind of have to think like um kind of the heisenberg principle right so you know anytime you um are are trying to observe a phenomenon you actually change (laughs) you change that phenomenon just by looking at it yep and and that's very much what's happening you know in sleep studies so now when you go out into the field you obviously can't carry all of your serious equipment with you and so you have to use more rudimentary lighter weight devices to get them into the into the bush um, and so what you kind of give up in terms of, you know, technical sophistication, you gain in terms of uh, people being able to do it and actually getting it into more of a naturalistic environment. So uh, anyhow, they one of the surprising findings is that, um, you know, the and, and there's actually a really important point that that needs to be made here is that the National Sleep Foundation recommends people get seven to nine hours of sleep. Yep. Right. What Dr. Siegel found uh, and his colleagues found is that on average, the hunter-gatherers were sleeping about, I think, around 5.9 to six and a half hours per night. Wow, that sounds like a big difference. But the really important thing here is that if you were to report sleep, you don't say, you know, if I were to say, hey, you know, Mark, when, when did you go to sleep last night? Well, I went to bed at midnight. I woke up at eight, right? You wouldn't, and then I slept eight hours. You wouldn't say, I went to bed at midnight. I woke up at eight. And I had 65, I had 85% sleep efficiency, so I slept six hours and 42 minutes, exactly. right? right. You, nobody reports their sleep that way. Um, but that's what a sleep study would detect, right? So that's why there's a, dispar- there's a discrepancy sometimes between sleep time and sleep period. When people talk about their sleep, they're really talking about sleep period. It was the period of time that they slept. And they don't have, I mean, so much, you know, it's natural for people to wake up 15 to 20 times per night, little rollover, um, have brief bouts of awakening that you don't even remember. And that's very normal sleep. You just don't report on that, you know, when you're telling a friend how much you slept. Um, but a sleep, you know, sleep devices will pick that up. So while it sounds like we're not getting a lot of, you know, that the hunter-gatherers were actually not getting that much sleep, 
um, their sleep period was identical. It was between seven, seven hours and eight and a half hours. That was the amount of time that they were sleeping. That was their sleep period. Gotcha. Yeah. And so it was, uh, it was, but they were on the lower end. They were definitely on the lower end of, um, you know, so then there's a couple questions to be asked. Like, do they have more efficient sleep? Do they need less deep sleep for some certain reasons? Um, you know, one question that came up with Dr. Siegel, when I asked him on my podcast, um, Humanoist Radio, I said, are, you know, he said, he asked me, he's like, well, what, what are, how much sleep do you need for what? Right. And if you're, um, undergoing, you know, really rigorous cognitive work day by day that where you have to work for 10 hours and concentrate, you know, you might need more sleep and that might, prom that sort of activity might promote more sleep at night. Um, versus if you have a lot of rest during the day versus, you know, kind of shorter periods of intense work. So lots of questions, um, came from that study. I'm going to be speaking on the, at the ancestral health symposium specifically on the subject. And while I've definitely done some investigation into it thus far, I look forward to spending more time with it and, and really analyzing all the literature for that presentation. And of course today with things, you know, the things that tend to jump out with, you know, seeing clients day to day in practice or even working with athletes, which maybe we'll get to here in a minute, but with your average clients, things like stress, things like the blue light exposure, alcohol intake in the evening, are all these things, you know, driving our, our need for total sleep up? Well, you know, a lot of things can, can affect it subtly and that yet it's still, we don't have a perfect grasp over those influences because it's studied less, right? Cause so much research is around clinical problems versus everyday, yep. you know, influences. Although there, there is work on that for sure. Um, but you know, un undoubtedly, you know, I think everybody, you know, physical activity is an interesting one because, uh, it kind of depends on, um, the amount of work that you, uh, the amount of physical activity you get and how, uh, how much beyond the regular amount of physical activity you get, um, that can determine whether or not your sleep is better or actually worsened by physical activity. So if you regularly get physical activity, we know that's a good thing for sleep. If you typically get, let's say arbitrarily five units of exercise, but you have one day you have 10 units or 15 units, you just get a lot more than usual then that might disturb your sleep, you know, it might be, or you could sleep like a, you know, like a rock. So, um, yeah, so you have a little bit more variability in how well you sleep, given how much exercise you got once you start to go beyond what you usually do. Yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, and that's something that, um, you know, if we do dovetail into the performance side of things, I mean, you know, the work of Sherry Ma in terms of reaction time, sprint speed, things like mm -hmm. the three-point shooting percentage for serves in tennis. I mean, you know, her work in the NCAA athletes is showing that, you know, that 10 hours per day or 70 hours per week as being something to sort of shoot towards for people who are, you know, elite or high performers. Is that something that you see or where's the, uh, where's the research at, at this point with, with performance and sleep? Yeah. So, um, Sherry Ma's at Stanford. She's looked at, like you said, um, track, you know, track athletes, tennis athletes, basketball, football, and then she looked to then see if performance uh, was different between groups of athletes that were um, assigned to get more time in bed, so nine hours per night, versus those that did not. And, you know, it, there, it's, it's really good early pilot research, but it's not as well controlled because, you know, there could be other variables that are, of course, influencing changes in performance. Um, but generally, the pattern is there, which means it's worth investigating further. Uh, and so, the in, one of the more interesting aspects about her work is that when you when asked all, when all the different athletes were asked um, in the different studies how do you feel they all 
wrote down that they felt fine, essentially, in terms of like that way that that information was collected. When after they were assigned to the group to get more time in bed, so nine hours per night, they all felt better. So their mood improved, their recovery improved. And then that led to, you know, but essentially uh, markers of greater, you know, um, you know, system responsivity to whatever the task was. So whether it's shooting percentage, whether it's reaction time, and we know that reaction time is very sensitive to sleep time and sleep quality. So, uh, yeah, so all of these things can provide an advantage for an athlete that, I mean, if you, if you're giving really good sleep, sometimes more than you even think that can really lend to better performance and better recovery. So obviously you're challenging your body a lot. You need kind of like a developing child. You need, as as you're growing, and if you're an athlete, you're always in a state of like heightened, you want to be in a state of repair because you're really breaking your body down. Uh, You need to have that rest time in order to turn your effort into results that make you kind of a continually better athlete and a continually better performer. So the athlete side is like, is are your sprint times and your vertical jump, you know, improving from your training. And then your athletic, the athletic ability component is, you know, is your percentage, your free throw percentage is, is that translating into, you know, results in the field or results in the court or whatever it is in terms of, uh, you know, playing the sport better. Absolutely. I mean, a couple of things that jump to mind are obviously, you know, college level athletes tend to lack of sleep for sure. So that's, uh, yeah. that's definitely a low hanging fruit. And then, you know, with us at Canada Basketball, a lot of our young athletes obviously are, you know, in the evening in their wind down period before bed, it's a lot of Instagramming and Twittering and, and, and this type of thing. So can you um, review sort of what that does? You know, how much is that blue light really going to affect that deep sleep and particularly in, in athletes? Yeah, you know, there's been some work on yeah, so I work in Jamie Zeitzer's circadian biology lab. Circadian biology is, has, uh, this is that's what we're talking about when we're talking about blue light. So we have a master clock in the brain. The master clock is looking for signals from the outside. And then it once it gets those signals, it's affecting its own pattern of activity, uh, which is then influencing what we call clocks in cells and tissues throughout our body. And it's a way for... Uh, the brain to coordinate the the timing of certain processes, whether it's cell cycle and repair, whether it's behavioral patterns, whether it's even your even your sleep wake cycle is a circadian rhythm. Light is the major synchronizer of that rhythm, and so what you want is you want to get if you think about what what would if you were a hunter gatherer what would that look like? You'd get a lot of light during the day, and then you'd the the when the sun went down you'd have uh, some light by their by fire only. Um, so it was dim and of a certain tone and then you'd, uh, go to bed and you'd have, you know, a reasonable amount of darkness. It wouldn't necessarily need to be pitch black. But, um, what we do now is we spend a lot of our time indoors. So the light intensity from outside is less than, uh, it would be if it was, if you were outside much less. And then we also get more light in the evening when it would usually be dark And so it's a very strange pattern of less light intensity during the day, but longer periods of light and then less darkness. So you also think there's, you know, our body's attuned to all sorts of signals that and there's a certain certain amount of darkness that we um, evolved with. Right. So even though that would change over the seasons um, and during darkness, we produce melatonin and melatonin has broad effects in the body. Uh, Major, it's a really powerful antioxidant and also something that will reinforce it uh, it reinforces what's called the dark period, so it it helps to trans. It, once its light is coming into the eye, 
then this, uh, or excuse me, stops coming into the eye, then that will initiate this darkness chemical, and that tells the rest of the body that it's dark out, and then that helps to prime the body for certain dark, dark time activities. Um, so it's not necessarily a sleep hormone because we know that there are nocturnal animals that have high melatonin as well. Um, so it's more of a timing hormone, although it does have slight soporific effects in humans, which means that it does um, promote a little bit of sleepiness in humans. Um, and so anyway, when you're getting uh, bright light into the eye late at night, that can have a really serious impact on um, your reaction time the next day, your mood, uh, just how well your body is functioning. And so while it's really difficult to stop people from using Instagram and their phones at night, there are sure. some things, it's really hard, right? Because we that's our time to relax and, and, and just kind of be by ourselves and humans will always take a little time for themselves. And now nowadays, that's how we do it, right? We're either watching television or we're playing, you know, on some social media site to, um, cause essentially we, we construct those social media sites to be of interest to us. For sure. Right? And so you get a scroll through your interest feed and it's captivating. So, you know, well, I think it's good to try to maintain some good hygiene around those products. So, all right, I'm going to turn it off at this time. Um, another way to do it is to then modify the light that's coming out of it for sure so that it's less, uh, of a negative influence. It's telling the brain it's, there's a less strong, of, um, strong of a signal that's saying to the brain it's day when it's actually nighttime and you will perform much, much better when you, you know, implement some of those, uh, techniques into your life. And, um, uh, I interviewed my own mentor, Jamie Zeitzer, and in that blog, so if you go to, you know, blog.danceline.com, you look for Jamie Zeitzer, we taught, I give you, um, a way that you can actually go beyond night shift, which is, the now built into the iOS systems on on an iPhone, which can convert, help your screen turn more yellow tone um, at night. And I can take it a, a step farther by something called color shift. So I give you very specific instructions about how to do that. But I, whenever, whenever I'm reading in bed, I I do I use color shift, and that really helps to remove that blue light. Um, so I'm, I perform better the next day. And you've got to remind yourself, like I'm going to perform better the next day. That's why I'm doing this because obviously it's you know, more pleasant to look at a screen that has the full colors there. So you got to consider that too. For sure. No, that's great. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. And something that comes to mind is, uh, you know, a lot of our younger athletes are seeing a pattern now of, uh, you know, prescriptions for melatonin at younger ages and teens and, and in university. I was just wondering your your thoughts on that, if, if, if it's really more on the hygiene side that we should be focusing or if small doses of supplemental things like melatonin could be beneficial for certain populations or perhaps even in, in you know, teens and collegiate athletes. You know, it, it is, uh, it's interesting. I mean, whenever you're taking a hormone, you want to be careful about whether or not your pattern of, uh, taking a supplementary hormone is affecting your internal ability to produce it. And, and yet kind of like vitamin D, right? We take vitamin supplementary vitamin D, which is a hormone because we're not getting enough. And so there could be some evidence there i mean there could be some you know rationale for actually taking small doses of exogenous melatonin in order to help really entrain that dark period um but again more than telling your brain that it's uh than helping you go to sleep i mean melatonin is a very here's the problem with melatonin it's a very very weak soporific as i mentioned before so it's, it's not very powerful at making you sleepy although it does a, a little bit so in order to then sort of maximize the effects of the sleepiness of melatonin, people take extraordinarily high doses, milligram doses, three, three milligram, five milligrams, sometimes more. And 
that can ha- create levels of melatonin in your blood that are, you know, hundred uh, sixty-five times higher than what you would naturally see. Okay, is that necessarily a problem? You know, I I just don't. I'm not one who wants to run necessarily a, a, a experiment like that in a young person. For sure. Um, you know, so if you're going to be taking melatonin, you know, one way to do it would be to take it. 0.3 milligrams, very small dose. It's not going to make you sleepy, but it is going to give your brain it's a, that, uh, a signal that it's dark out. Even if you have, it's kind of the equivalent of wearing blue blue light blocking glasses. Awesome. And you'd want to, yeah, and you'd want to take that when you're, uh, you know, when you're going to bed, or, or excuse me, um, when the sun is going down. So there's a couple ways you could do it, right? You could try to mimic. Uh, what's happening in kind of your natural cycle outside, light, light, dark cycle. Or you could make it a rule of saying, I'm going to just take this a small amount, two and a half, you know, two hours before bed and set an alarm and, and, and then do it that way. And that's going to prevent, help prevent some of the shifting um, of your circadian rhythm that can happen when you're looking at, when you have inadequate light during the day and then too much light right before bed. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is to wear glasses. Um, and so I, that's what I tend to do is to put on glasses. I have an alarm that goes off. I put on my glasses two hours before bed. They're blue light filtering glasses. And, um, you know, I think in order to be healthy in our world, you got to be a little weird. And, uh, <laughs> for sure. For sure. You, yeah, you really do. Now, I, yeah. I recently saw a study came out, and this is one that I can definitely attest to having, uh, you know, gone sort of backwoods camping, portaging and whatnot, and how, you know, with no outdoor, uh, or excuse me, artificial light, it's amazing how by 8 or 9 p.m., I mean, you're just tired and, uh, uh, you know, you, you fall asleep quite nicely. And so a study yeah. came out showing that, you know, camping can be a nice way to sort of reset some of the circadian rhythms. So just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that's done by Kenneth Wright out of uh, University of Colorado. Uh, Ken does great work. Um, my mentor, Jamie and Ken were at Harvard at the same time getting their PhD under Chuck Seisler, who's like the great, the godfather of circadian biology and sleep. Terrific. And yeah, and Ken, I, I really like all the work that Ken does. I just spoke about some of his studies, um, last week at paleo effects, uh, and that are unrelated, but yeah, he's done studies now. And in, in this case, he brought people out to a camping environment measured their melatonin levels and they totally changed over the course of a couple of days compared to what they were prior to, you know, in their, in their modern life. So I think any sort of technology that helps you emulate a more natural pattern is that's why that's my, you know, m- my most optimistic view of tech is to help us live a pattern that is more natural versus, um, you know, then I'm open to, but cautious with technology that's meant to like, make us be superhuman in some ways. Sometimes it feels like you're superhuman if you're just living more naturally. Um, and, but anything that's trying to, you know, uh, transcend our own biology, then it's like, okay, I'm open to it, but, um, let me see the, let me see the data. (laughs) Um, so that's a little aside, but anyway, so this, this sort of study where you get out there and you go camping, um, can be really powerful. And another lesson from it is, can you, what if you just were to do this a couple times a year? And could that have some positive impact on, you know, on our physiology by maintaining a natural rhythm uh, for a period of time? And actually, I published a study in the Journal of Evolution of Health uh, probably six or seven months ago talking about a four-day camping trip um, where people were emulating a paleolithic pattern of, of living. So they went, um, they fasted every morning. They had two meals a day. They were sleeping on, like outside and under natural kind of on these 
platform, natural platforms um, that they would build uh, by uh, for four nights. Uh, and so the food was the, the the there was fasting. The food was all you know designed to be paleo like. Um, they were walking a lot, and yeah, they had really impressive results. Even the, these were all healthy people that were from the an athletes university in, in Germany. And they even even then they had pretty significant changes in their blood markers, fatty liver index, insulin sensitivity, body weight. Um, wow. It wasn't controlled for weight loss. I know. So well, again, what's normal might not necessarily be optimal. And they all moved in the direction of what you see with hunter gatherers. And that was only four days. So could we could some sort of you know short trip to to uh, you know where you're living much more naturally be a therapeutic option for people that have, you know, certain conditions. It's, of course, it's rigorous and challenging, but it's also potentially very healthy for us. 100%. I mean, it's amazing how just, yeah, a little bit of more exposure to nature and the natural environment can really uh, reboot health and cognitive function. And I know, you know, you spoke on um, sleep and weight gain recently. Was it the paleo effects? Can you share some of the uh, latest insights uh, on, on that research? Yeah, sure. So I'll try to summarize um, the work. So I gave a bit of a history about um, you know, a, a lot of the work that's gone on in the area, I started off talking about timing, right? So we were talking about circadian rhythms, but that's really talking about body timing and what you want, where your body to function best. And that, that, how that translates into, you know, performing best on the court, performing best in your life, having a good positive, you know, positive mood, being your favorite version of yourself in all, in every way, you really want your rhythms to be synchronized and uh, working together. So imagine a symphony playing, right? And if some of the symphony is, uh, you know, a couple, you know, a couple uh, measures off, then it's going to not, it's not going to sound very, it's not going to be optimal at all. And um, that's what a, a, a really strongly um, aligned circadian rhythm what will do for you is it helps your body work at its optimal function. So one idea that I brought up is uh, this researcher Dina Arbol. She had taken mice and she fed um, she fed the, them the same amount of calories and she also monitored their physical activity and found that they got the same amount of physical activity. Now the difference was that they fed one group uh, a all their calories when they usually sleep. Uh, so same amount of calories, but what they found is that over a six week period, the group that was getting their calories at a time when they usually sleep um, had a significantly increased significant increase in weight gain compared to the other group. Wow. And yeah, so they were they gained a lot of fat. A lot of the a lot of the weight gain wasn't was fat as well. Next, Laura Funkin, who's somebody that I had on my, my podcast not too long ago, instead of feeding mice at a time when they were overweight, what she did is she had uh, she fed mice the same amount of calories and had the same amount of activities, the same. But one group, uh, while they were sleeping, again, and their sleep time was when they usually slept, she had dim light on at night. So their sleeping cages, instead of being in dark darkness, they were in light. And what do they find is that the mice then wanted to eat later and later every night. And they too then had statistically significant increases in body weight compared to the group that was getting the same amount of calories and had the same amount of physical activity over time. And so timing really matters. And um, I published a blog uh, probably a year ago now, but talking uh, about some work out of the Wiseman Institute and where... Essentially, we make different enzymes um, that are suited for certain caloric needs or certain, uh, you know, to, to help us 
metabolize different sorts of substrates at different times. And so the timing of food really, really matters. I'm going to record a podcast tomorrow with um, Greg Potter and Jeff Rothschild on this very subject. Um, and so there's still more to be worked out there, but we obviously know that fasting and time restricted feeding windows are, are very becoming very popular. And, uh, and the circadian, whenever you're talking about fasting and time restricted feeding, we're also really talking about circadian biology too. And so that's a, um, a, a very interesting, promising field. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing stuff as well for, you know, for regular folk who are just trying to improve their health or lose weight, because just being able to uh, synthesize this to some simple, straightforward approaches as in, you know, don't eat too much food after dinner, after 7 p.m. or whatever it might be um, that, that we're seeing in the findings is, is sort of a, an amazing way to, to achieve a lot of these benefits without making things too, too complicated, isn't it? You, you know, you're absolutely right. And the easier we can make it, then um, the better, because then the guidance is simple, it's easy to implement, and you can have, I mean, one thing that we know is anything that can have a hard and fast rule that is easy to remember and implement, or you know, at least easy to remember so that it's easier to implement, it can be very effective. Kind of like the car carbs are bad, you know, from a while ago. While it's not true, it's effective because what it does is it gives you this easy to follow heuristic that can help people make better few choices. Now, the problem with that is, of course, it's it's um, it's not entirely true, but it's it's still effective. So that's what leads to a lot of, you know, debate on the internet about you know what the, what, what, you know, how should we be educating on this subject? But anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> For sure. I mean, it's always interesting yeah. how yeah, it's uh, you know, even prescribing sort of a lower carb diet. I mean, like you said, I mean, in, in the short term, you just take away all the processed food, the sugars, etc. So you do get gains, but you know whether the, the total calories obviously still being important and various other things. So it's almost like giving people enough information that they need at the time and then uh, furthering the discussion down the road once things uh, plateau, right? Yeah, actually, I'll, um, I wrote a blog on ketones and carbs. And I'll send it to you. It was probably the most popular blog post I'd ever written. Um, it got, in a lot of, I got a lot of traction in, in the time it came out. But I talk about how I, I used a, 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 a saying that it might be that um, while we have to cut carbs in order to get into ketosis, um, oftentimes it was described that ket the carbs were the problem, so you had to cut them so much, and that ket you know ketosis was kind of a secondary result. Versus ketones are the desired result; you have to cut carbs to get there. But the carbs aren't necessarily bad themselves, and so in fact, a high fat diet that's not in that's not generating ketones actually might be problematic for a lot of people. So it might be darkest before the dawn, if you will. And um, anyway, it's worth worth taking a look if people are interested in the subject, I think. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and finally, on the, on the sleep and weight gain, I mean, obviously people now, I mean, what is it, 30% of the population now aren't even getting six hours of sleep per night. Uh, is yeah. this another sort of just low-hanging fruit for folks to just get to bed earlier to help with, uh, you know, whether it's cravings, et cetera, that lead to excessive caloric intake and weight gain? Yeah, so I only partially addressed your your question, but um, I'll take a circuitous route to answer that one. So there's the other asp the other um, component aside from timing that I spoke to was the metabolic effects, um, and so we know that sleep loss is a stressor, and when you are awake, you have greater activity of your sympathetic nervous system than you do in your sleep, and so if you're spending more time awake, then you have um, just by nature of being awake, you're 
you're you're now spending more time in a 24-hour period under control of the sympathetic nervous system. Downstream of that is activation of the HPA axis and the release of cortisol. And if you're over-releasing cortisol, at least in terms of what your body balance, um, you know, desires, you can develop cortisol resistance at tissues. And cortisol it helps to quell inflama- inflammation. And so if your tissues become insensitive to uh, cortisol, then you can. It's something that can contribute to chronic low-grade inflammation. We see that with Cushing syndrome or people that are on prednisone. Cushing syndromes are people that produce a lot of cortisol um, uh, as part of that condition and develop abdominal obesity and, and uh, higher levels of adiposity. So we know that sleep loss is a stressor. And um, we've seen now some work by Josie Broussard, who's now at the Uni- University of Colorado um, in, the, in the Department of Kenneth Wright as well. And um, she's looked at a couple nights of sleep loss on on fat tissue and to see and notice that the uh, insulin's effectiveness at doing its job at storing uh, carbohydrates in your blood into fat tissue was massively reduced even after just a few nights of sleep loss. And so what happens then is that you have to release more insulin in order to generate an effect. So that's what can drive insulin up. Um, And it can also drive high levels of, of fasting glucose, et cetera. So that's why people that are healthy under four or five nights of sleep loss, they'll look like a pre-diabetic in terms of if you were to met, do an oral glucose tolerance test on them. So, um, yeah, now if we're, if you're, if your life is defined by, you know, your weeks, not getting enough sleep and then on the weekends playing catch up, you're essentially, you know, the risk is that you are, um, promoting a, a pre-diabetic and diabetic state. And that's exactly what was found. So if you kind of start, think about the mechanism so that we see that there's this cellular resistance to insulin after sleep loss, you see a clinical effect of increase, increased blood sugar after in healthy people after a few nights of, of sleep loss. And then finally, if you look at epidemiology, a study by Dan Gottlieb at Boston, he looked at 1500 people, uh, and was, and looked at whether, uh, and group them to, so majority of the people were getting seven to eight hours of sleep, but just like you said, 30% of the sample was getting less than six hours. And if you were getting less than six hours of sleep, then, um, that short sleep time associated with diabetes and impaired glucose tolerance. And these are under conditions of sleep deprivation that are highly prevalent, right? In the United States. So that's a big problem. That's a really big problem. For sure. Especially walking around an environment that's going to be chock full of processed food and sugar and all these things that are going to be obviously really hyper palatable and your brain will likely be uh, wanting more and more right after all the sleep deprivation. Well, that's a good segue to the next part. So we taught, we, we look at how sleep loss is influencing the, um, the kind of metabolism of substrates poorly. But then we also see that energy regulating hormones like leptin, um, leptin is a fat derived hormone that signals to the brain energy status of our, so how much energy you have on your body. And when leptin goes down, that drives a hunger program that really wants you to take in food and that stores everything that you take in. And so we see that leptin, um, leptin alters under sleep loss so that it goes down, which is going to promote feeding. And we also know that ghrelin, which is a hormone derived, uh, released from the stomach that is involved in a variety of things, including, especially in hunger generation and reward. And so ghrelin goes up. So if you're thinking about leptin going down and ghrelin going up, both of those independently are going to cause you to eat more food. And, um, and that's exactly what, so Karen Spiegel's work at, she's out of, uh, uh, Lyon, France, uh, but was doing work with um, Evan Cotter at the University of Chicago, who's like 
you know, probably the single name in, in sleep and metabolism. A lot, she's a center of excellence. So a lot of, a lot of the people who are doing work in the space came out of her lab at some point and are now either there still or somewhere else around the world. But, wow. um, yeah. And so she's, uh, they found that what was interesting is that they, when people got less sleep, they ate more, but not only were they eating more, but there seemed to be a preference for, uh, like either originally it was high carb food. So that was interesting. What's going on there. <clears throat> and then what Rachel, Rachel Markwald, um, found, she was actually, she's also with Kenneth Wright. They found that, um, you know, if you're up, if you're spending more time awake, you're burning more calories. And so it actually makes sense for your homeostatic hormones to adjust in a way where you're going to then want to eat more the next day. You're just compensating for that extra energy expenditure. The problem was is that people overconsume. So they're eating more than what you would estimate they would need in order to just get back to a baseline. For sure. And yeah. And so where are all those calories coming from? Well, if you look across the meals in her studies, they breakfast was normal, lunch was normal, dinner was normal. They were all having post-dinner snacks. So that's where a lot of the calories came from. And if you remember Laura Funken's study where she fed, where she had dim light at night and they, the, the mice were consuming more of their calories later in their evening, quote unquote, if you will, mm-hmm. that caused weight gain. And then, so that's kind of what we're seeing here is that they had more calories late in the evening when they were under sleep deprivation. That's obviously a common, you know, working downtown Toronto, people, a busy day. By the end of the day, they get on the couch, they get a chance to decompress after dinner, and all of a sudden it's a, you know, sweet or salty snack to get a little comfort in the brain and then just an ah moment of relaxation. And, of course, it seems to program in where every night, um, you know, over and over again this sort of happens. And so, you know, as you mentioned, some of those, you know, low-hanging fruit of perhaps just pulling the Band-Aid off and getting those those late meals, uh, crossing those off the list can be a great way to, to reboot uh, body composition. Yeah, it's really true. And um, I'll, I'll mention one other a study uh, from Erin Hanlon, also at the University of Chicago. And what she looked at was endocannabinoids, right? So we all know that if you smoke pot, like a common side effect of that is getting the munchies. Well, we have our own endocannabinoid system. So this this affects you know, pain regulation, hunger, mood. It's this, uh, m- you know, master system in our body that is helping to regulate metabolism, definitely involved in food intake. And under sleep deprivation, um, you see during the day that there are levels of 2-arachidonoglycerol, which is one of the endocannabinoids, is elevated for most of the day. And the food intake actually corresponds with the rise in endocannabinoid levels. So wow. you think about, and you know, what kind of, what do you get the munchies for? Do you get the munchies for, you know, celery? No, it's typically like snack foods, like palatable, you know, uh, cookies or chips or whatever. For and sure. that's, and that's that, that is what that system is driving. It's pleasure mediated eating. So Utah, you know, in their study, there was a drive for increased carbohydrates and fats, but then there was a decreased, um, hunger for, for protein. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, sort of what you see in, in clinical practice as well, right? People, unfortunately not snacking on grass fed beef or sardines at uh, 10 o'clock at night, right? Yeah. It's like a cookie, a snack, um, or sometimes, you know, maybe it's like a piece, it's a lot of calories, piece of pizza, but easy to take in a lot of calories right before bed and that can mess up your sleep a little, you know, where there's a little bit of work on that. Uh, I think, I think that there's room for optimization by eating earlier in the night. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
then you know we also know that it's the effects the, the work that's been done on food and eat and sleep behavior uh, a lot by Maurice Pierre Santange um, it you just over the course of the day if you have more fiber and adequate protein um, then you sleep you tend to have greater and slow wave sleep at night so you have deeper higher quality sleep and if you have more sugar and saturated fat this is in her study then that correlated with greater arousals and lighter more fragmented sleep. That's, yeah, so, that's so interesting. I mean, um, another thing that typically comes up with you know busy type A's executives here working downtown Toronto is this idea of, of travel, plane travel with work, uh, and the impacts there on, of course, uh, circadian rhythm and, and blood sugar control and inflammation, things like that. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah. So, you know, going going back to the idea of the circadian rhythm stuff that when you're doing when you're traveling across time zones, you're constantly putting your if you think about what jet lag is it is putting your body in a state where it is now struggling to take in it's taking in the signals of your new environment and trying to adjust your physiology so that it matches with those new environmental signals and if you're going to let's say a place that's several hours away from where you live uh by flight by you know by a plane and then you travel back your body is trying to adjust once it gets there, and then it's trying to then it has to readjust all the way when it when it gets back. And so, if somebody's traveling regularly for work, that can be really rough on our biology. I noticed in my own research, if uh, just variabilities, so let's say somebody gets eight hours of sleep per night, but they have high variability in their sleep time and their wake time, that was enough to cause significant impairments in subjective sleepiness. So feeling, uh, you know, I feel sleepy every day or objective reaction time, which is another way to monitor sleepiness or alertness levels. And um, so the reaction time slows down. So if you think about that, this the, the way, how quickly information can pr come into the brain, be processed, is transferred across to different brain areas that are needed in order to be able to make decisions, to have a functioning working memory, et cetera. All of those are diminished, that those functions are diminished. And, um, Gosh, I mean, that how anybody works under those conditions is is tough. But uh, we know also that there's pretty serious disease consequences too. So the nurse nurses who do shift work, if you look at the nurse nurse health study, you know, they have four four or five fold increases in cancer risk and cardiovascular disease risk. Um, it's really, you know, our our body is not used to that sort of environmental condition. So what do you do? Well, my mentor, um, he was Jeb Black. He was the director of the Stanford Sleep Clinic for about 15 years. He was working with a Swiss uh, pharmaceutical company. And so he was going there once a month. He'd go for a week and come back. And what he would do is he would basically try to adjust as little as possible so that he was going to bed, let's see, I think it was earlier here and then later there to try to minimize how much he was shifting. And then, um, yeah, and then he, and then he, once he got there, he had, a, he had a time to fully adjust and then he had time to fully adjust back, but it was still, you know, it took a bit of a, you know, a toll. So those that are traveling very regularly across time zones, that's, that, that's risky, but there are, there is some new technology that's coming out that might actually ameliorate some of those effects. My mentor being the person who invented the, the science or that at least, excuse me, I mean, he, uh, described the science first and then a company is commercializing it uh, but he has no financial interest in it and um the idea is that if you use light pulses at night with this eye mask um by lumos tech then that can actually 
synchronize or that can uh, move your circadian rhythm, the timing of your circadian rhythm faster than just getting light from out, outside or or even continuous light in in the room. So if you're sleeping in in a room with a light on, that can move your circadian rhythm. Um, and, and but if you have these light pulses at the right time, depending on where you're going and where you're coming from, then that can actually adjust it more quickly. So you could cut the amount of time you need to fully adjust to a new time zone down by maybe two thirds, which is really, really beneficial. That means you're spending sometimes maybe five, six, seven days um, less in sort of this metabolic disrangement. So it's- That's incredible, yeah, I was gonna ask, I mean, obviously with Canada basketball, we have our athletes, obviously in the NBA and playing and other professional sports who are traveling so much or people who are crossing over from uh, uh, the US to the UK or Europe. Um, so I was gonna ask things around, yeah, light exposure or meal timing, if those are, are potential strategies, but it sounds like this uh, a new technology provides a, potentially a lot of uh, uh, potential benefit. Yeah, it does. All those things you mentioned would complement um, a, a smart strategy for athletes because they're they're a perfect example. They're traveling a lot, um, but they also have, hopefully, um, with a well constructed program uh, across the entire organization, that the athletes, even though their time is adjusting, or excuse me, the timing of where they are is you know the time zone is changing, that they're their own sleep time and their wake times are consistent. So if they're in New York, then you know they're going to bed later according to the clock. But then if they go to bed at, you know, if they're on the West Coast, um, then they're going to bed, you know, earlier. But the their actual biological timing is the same no matter where they are. And if they can keep that the same, then you're you know, which athletes have the luxury, more of a luxury of doing because they're not going to have 8 a.m. meetings necessarily um, when they arrive in the different time zones, which some people do have that. Um, and then late dinners, right? So that's like the, the, you know, the problem with like the business traveler, right? So they're early meetings in the, in the time zone. Like if I, if I travel, I'm in San Francisco time, if I travel to New York, if I have an 8 a.m. meeting, then that, I, that means I need to get up at like 3.30, my biological time, which obviously I I'm, yeah. I'm, don't get up at that time. Um, so that's really, that's really hard. And, you know, the body, body can tolerate that, but the more you put your body in it, then it's not clearing out toxic substances in the brain. It's not forming memories as strongly as it should. And, you know, the, the, this, it's a, it's a major stressor and that's going to age you faster. It could cause chronic disease. You know, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's an issue. And on that note of, if we dovetail into kind of sleep and longevity, you know, oftentimes clients, obviously when they get older, they report. You know, not needing as much sleep or waking more frequently through the night. You know, is that something that's quote unquote normal, or is this something that's just increasing in frequency in the population for for other reasons? Yeah, so we are trying. You know, the research is trying to figure that out. We do know that sleep does change across the lifespan. We know that people that tend to be healthy agers tend to have good sleep, although it's not that that population is not really well characterized. But that has been observed multiple times in, in certain studies that, you know, healthy agers are healthy sleepers. Um, we also know that poor sleep was thought to be symptomatic of a bunch, uh, different brain conditions, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and it's now thought to be causative, especially of Alzheimer's disease. And it makes perfect sense that it would be causative. So why is that? Well, there's an area of the brain the medial prefrontal cortex, which is important for generating slow wave sleep. Slow wave sleep is a phase of sleep that is necessary to uh, 
it does some very important things in the body, like clearing out, again, these neurotoxic substances that accumulate with wake time activity. So just the normal process of being awake can create these substances that, if not cleared, can cause problems in, in your neurons. Um, and you clear them during this very specific 0.4 to 1 hertz sleep that is generated by this medial prefrontal cortex. And what's interesting is that uh, when you don't get enough sleep, then you can accumulate these protein aggregates called beta amyloid. And where's the first place that you will start to aggregate them is in the medial prefrontal cortex, the area responsible for generating the sleep to clear those toxic substances. Gotcha. And so it's this vicious cycle. And once that happens, then you also can develop more of the tau pathology, which is also part of the Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot of, it is that sort of accelerated downward spiral. And then the worse sleep that you're getting, the less likely, likely you are to feel physically active. The less physical activity you get, the worse sleep you get. The worse sleep you're getting, the more, you know, the, the harder it is to be social. The less, you know, you could really see the acceleration of, of the aging phenotype um, with poor sleep. So uh, I like to focus on the things that you can do to get good sleep. And soon we're going to have technologies that intervene to actually override our physiology in some ways that are really exciting. Um because it might actually help us help mimic more youthful sleep for longer. And that actually then therefore might help, help us feel younger for longer too. Wow. That's really, uh, really interesting. Um, at the moment, I mean, in terms of technology or ways to assess sleep, you know, if it's just somebody's ability to fall asleep and waking in the morning, uh, apps tech, what, what's, uh, what can people go to, to really determine if they're uh, sleeping optimally? Yeah. So I think right now we've got quantified self, which is assessing, well, it doesn't mean, it's self-tracking. That's what that definitely, that's what that means. Uh, what you are tracking depends on the company and, and what they try to focus you, know, you on. And I think that there have been companies out there that were giving you feedback on certain stages because they were able to monitor them. But then uh, that can sometimes be distracting as well. So my technique for because i have a tracking platform human os is really robust in that um in this component mm -hmm. is to help you track behaviors that get you good sleep so are you getting adequate amounts of physical activity in your life and how much is adequate is more is you know is it more the better probably not and then are you also doing very mundane activities i call it the mundane but meaningful right so going to bed on time planning to get enough time in bed no guarantee that you're going to sleep well, but you're not going to get eight hours of sleep if you're going to, if you're in bed for six. For sure. For so, sure. right. So setting goals and then, and one of the simplest is having a bedtime goal. So I want to be in bed by 1130 every night. So if I'm then at the point where I'm, you know, in bed trying to sleep where I, it's like, well, I'm going to watch another episode of, you know, Game of Thrones or House of Cards or whatever. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so that you kind of need that sort of intervening tech to help us self-regulate a bit better because, you know, we know how to design technology, including television shows, te entertainment that is so captivating that it can, right, it's that binge, binge watching type of phenomenon that, you know, the, epi the next episode just starts if you don't play, push stop and it just keeps you in that loop. And then you're tired and you have inhibited, you have poor inhibitory control and it, you know, keeps going you on can itself for sure. Yeah, and you can reliably just miss out on another half an hour, 45 minutes of sleep every night, and that and the effects of sleep loss accumulate. So 
It doesn't mean that you can't purge, uh, you know, have some benefit of purging them. But if you were to stay up, let's say, let's say you needed eight hours of sleep, but you went to bed, you only got seven for a week, you'd perform okay, but you would, objective measures of cognitive performance would show significant changes. And, uh, and yet a lot of people live that way. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that, uh, you know, it's amazing all the work that you do and the insights that you provide. Um, and of course, I want to respect your time here today. So shifting gears to the last topic here, your morning routine. Can you give us some insights? Are you a coffee drinker? What does the morning look like for you? Yeah, I do. I do drink coffee. Um, so I wake up and I um, usually just go right to the shower. And then I, the last minute of my shower, I make ice cold, as cold as I can. And I have acclimated to that. So what I recommend people do is not is do over the course of a month, just make it cool. So get a, take a warm shower, then make it cool towards the end, and then increasingly make it colder and colder until your body can can handle it. But you want to get that sympathetic nervous system um, shock with the cold water, and what that can do is that it can serve as a signal to align your circadian rhythm. So it's almost like getting you know, outside light. So there, there are other factors that will influence your, the timing of your circadian rhythm. So that's one of the reasons why I like to take a cold shower first thing in the morning. And actually, if you acclimate to it in the right way, you can look forward to it because it makes you feel really alert um, right out of the gates. For sure. Better than an espresso and squats in the morning. <laughs> yeah. So speaking, speaking of which, then I I usually will do a little bit of exercise, not a ton. Um, I, I developed something called in-tune training. Uh, so it stands for integrative and opportunistic training. And the whole idea of that is to then integrate, integrate movement into your day. So instead of just doing a, your whole workout at once, um, which I don't, I'm not opposed to. So, but I, to offer another solution, um, we in tune, you have totals. And so we put out a workout every day and people will see this when we launch human OS. And then the idea is, okay, you've got 16 hours to accumulate these rep totals. Awesome. And so what I, yeah, I love it. And, um, and basically I do. I do a few of those reps every morning. So a cold shower, and then instead of, I, I either drink coffee or now I take nootropics. So I take Qualia from Neurohacker Collective, no relationship with them, but I like the product. And that has caffeine in it as well. That's another thing that can actually help to kickstart the circadian rhythm, keep it aligned. Mm -hmm. um, and so a little bit of physical activity and kind of depending on my timing and my energy levels, I always do a little, I, I commit to very little, so I get started. And then from there, then I might just do a little bit more, but... Um, if I keep my barrier of entry low, then I'm much more likely to do my first few reps. And if I do my first few reps, I'm much more likely to finish them by the end of the day. You know, That's all a, my reps. That is a great, great point. I see that all the time in clinical practice. Just do one push up or one squat, and all of a sudden everyone's doing 30, 40, 50. Uh, it's amazing totally. how that goes. Awesome, Dan. We well, really appreciate you making the time today. Uh, where can people keep up with uh, your fantastic work? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So. All, all these things that we're talking about, I'm trying to integrate into an application that just makes it easier for people. Um, and part of that is trying to make people more expert at their own health because I think that technology, while helpful, works much better in people that understand its value and under, that are taking the time to understand their health well. I'm like, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are. Uh, so Human OS is going to launch in a few weeks. I've been working on it for about five years. I'm really excited about it. And we're making peer-reviewed health courses. We have a whole tracking platform that lets you track things that that are really helpful to main, monitor your pattern of living and um uh, and then also like just ways to simplify your daily health practice so workouts and recipes and things like that too so some check it out so if you go to dan's plan if you go to humanos.me right now it, it'll probably redirect you to um dan's plan and then within a week or two we'll probably we'll probably be making the switch 
Fantastic. Well, that's incredible. Look forward to uh, to checking that out. And uh, thanks again for, for coming on the show today. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. As always, you can find all the links we talked about and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Use the hashtag Dr. B-U-B-B-S-P-P, Dr. Bubs, P-P. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And again, thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.